We are working our way through the book of Ephesians rather slowly. We, uh, our philosophy of preaching here is to be expository, so we simply want to expose the meaning of the text and help apply it to our lives. This is not what good does Matt have to say or any of those such things. It is what does God have to say to us from His Word. We want, don't want to add to that and certainly do not want to take away. And then as we go through different books of the Bible, we want sometimes we fly really high above the text, meaning that we kind of hit bigger chunks. Um, sometimes we've, we've even preached on a whole book and just get an overview of the whole book. This time we've chosen to fly really low to the text. Uh, so we're going at this rate about a clip of one and a half verses a week. Um, we uh, did verses one and two last week. We're just going to work through verse three this week. Paul, in his book to the church in Ephesus, has greeted us even today with these incredible words at the beginning of his epistle. And I want to take a few moments, even though we're just going to read verse 3, we always want to understand verses within a context. So what we want to do is, we'll read all of, of uh, verses 1 through about 14, then we'll stop and then we'll come back and we're going to work through just simply verse 3 uh, this morning. So, beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul's words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purposes, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray that as we seek to understand these words, Father, You would grant illumination by the power of Your Spirit, she would give us eyes and hearts to see and minds to understand the truth that you have in this passage. That, Father, we would walk out of here worshiping you more and more purely and more earnestly than we did coming in. I give you praise for that and what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to start with reading to you from the passage, chapter 116 of the book of Psalm, verses 12 through 14. It says this, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me. David says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. I want to start with this question. What shall we render to the Lord for the grace and peace that has been given to us? What Paul says in verse 2 Picking up on where we left off last week. He says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father. These are not flippant words by Paul. Paul is speaking of a truth that is a reality for these people. Grace and peace to you. This is yours. And my question is, what shall we render to the Lord for the grace and peace that has been given to us? What shall we render to the Lord for His agreement with Himself in eternity past to show grace to the world by making for Himself a people? 
What shall we render to the Lord for his promise and plan to make peace with the people who were once his enemies? We all were once God's enemies. Which leads me to another question. What is it in your life that captivates your praises? What is it that you find you're most often rendering your praises to? What is it that you cannot stop thinking about? That you cannot stop devoting your time and energy to? What is it you cannot stop giving your money toward? What is it that drives your emotions? I would ask this last question. What is the cup of salvation that you often lift up? The cup of security found in my paycheck? The cup of salvation you find in your kid's happiness? What is it, the cup of salvation? What is it that makes you feel most at home and alive and secure? That is probably the cup of salvation to which you lift up, or that which you lift up. John Calvin said this. He said, we see how fickle we are by nature, and when God is so good to us as to set his word before us, we insist on having some other things beside, and nothing can content us. And why not? Because we are dull and have never conceived or understood what God shows us by His Word. And as we work through this passage, Paul, we're going to see Paul understood this grace and peace. He knew the love that God had shown him in Christ. Paul also understood how it is that these these glorious truths that are found in Christ, how they become realities for us people. Paul knew the depths of the saving work of God. What did Paul render to God? At least in this passage, he renders the joy of his heart displayed in the praise of God. What Paul renders, Paul sees this glorious truth of God, and what does he do? He lifts up the cup of his salvation, his son Jesus, or not his son, but the father's son Jesus Christ. The cup of salvation that Paul lifted up was not happy kids, a nice house, or the affirmation of others. It was God's plan from before the world began to show grace to a people and make them his own. This is the cup of Paul's salvation. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul understood at much greater depths than we do, the salvation that was brought to us from Jesus Christ. And we're talking in this series about this idea of a whole gospel, whole life, where we want to have a robust, deep, thick understanding of the gospel. One that begins with God, doesn't begin with us. We don't define God by starting with us. We, we understand God as we begin with Him and the way He has defined Himself and revealed Himself to us, and then we want to seek that whole gospel, how we apply that to all of life, to our whole lives. But if we're going to apply the gospel to our lives, we need to understand the gospel. And Paul is going to help us understand the gospel. The first thing I want us to see from this passage, from this verse, verse 3, is that knowledge of the whole gospel always leads to joy in the Father. Knowledge of the whole gospel always leads to joy in the Father. I want to make sure we're clear. You understand we're not trying to devise a different gospel. We're not trying to give a different name for the gospel. We're just trying to describe that we want to understand the whole gospel. Ephesians 1 verse 3. We're going to read this verse at least 20 times this morning. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where does, where does Paul begin? So he's greeted them in Ephesus. Now where does he begin in verse 3? starting to get the business. And where does he begin? He begins with an outburst into the praise of God. Right, now these are just words on a page that we can just go, oh yeah, blessed be God the Father. No, Paul's going, blessed be God God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be Him. Praise be to God is what Paul is doing here. He outbursts into praise. 
You to understand, blessed always refers to God who is praised and as creator as we read him in the New Testament particularly. Blessed, he is the one and only blessed one. God is the blessed, in himself, because of himself, he is the blessed one. He is the only one worthy to be praised because of what is his value intrinsically, because of who he is, not because of anything we add to him, not because of anything the world adds to him, but because of who he is, he is the blessed one. So what happens is gratitude and thanksgiving once more wells up within the apostle as he recalls God's marvelous salvation plan in Jesus Christ. As he's getting ready to describe what has God done in Jesus and what does that mean for us, he says, blessed be God the Father. I want to point out something here that I just basically alluded to and that Paul is not ascribing uh, or Paul is not adding to, uh, ascribing is not the right word, but Paul is not adding to the blessedness of God. He is not saying that blessedness can be added to him, but he is describing the very state of God's existence. And Paul says to us that God has blessed us, right? So you see that in verse 3, he says, who has blessed us? God has added to us something that was not ours. He does not say that of God. He's saying that God is blessed, it's the state of God's existence. He is, he is blessed. That is a fact. Paul's not adding. We are not adding anything to God. Apart from us, apart from even his creation, God is blessed. He is the blessed one. Paul is saying ultimately that God is worthy of blessedness. No one else but God. Kind of the third thing underneath the side is Paul knew, again, and, and this and it sounds like a little bit of repetition here, but Paul knew and contemplated the depths of God's redeeming work. He believed God the Father was worthy of praise for every facet of the gospel that he's about to explain. For every part of God's work in saving a people, he believes God is praiseworthy for these pieces. From God's eternal choosing in the past to God's persevering of his saints in the present. Paul understood the extent of God's sovereignty and salvation. Paul understood the regeneration took place prior to faith. Paul understood adoption as sons. Paul understood the purpose of God's will. And all of these things lead Paul to go praise be to God. For he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And Paul desires that his adoration for God, his praise for God, the Father, will catch among his readers. That each and every person that would read these words would be stimulated to joyful blessing of the Father, to joyful praising of God. That each person would be spurred to give glory to God for all His gracious blessings. That each person would be reminded of their redemption in Christ and their experience of salvation. And so say, thank you, God. You are the blessed one. And so, I want to think through this with you. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, if you claim to follow Him, as you read, I want to speak to you for just a few moments, as you read through the New Testament, you cannot help but see Christians filled with joy and thanksgiving as a result of God's redeeming work. It happens time and time again. It's not the only time that Paul praises God for his gospel work. But a Christian, as you read through the New Testament, a Christian is actually marked by his or her joy in God's good news. And a Christian's joy in God's good news is a result of their knowing of this good news and their affection for this good news. Like it's actually a, a marking of a follower of Jesus that they have this joy in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they're known for this, known by this. And I just have to say that even many of us in this church are so caught up in anything but the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we walk around 
with temporary joy at best, joy that is fleeting. What about joy? Joy that's wedded to the world, if you will. And Paul's not, Paul, I mean, Paul was a sinner just like you and I, right? But Paul understood the gospel, and Paul, his blessedness, his joy that's welling up inside of Paul here is not wedded to the world. It is wedded to the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, I think when you ponder, and this is what's going on in Paul's mind, is that when you ponder the magnitude of mercy required to rescue your depraved soul and my depraved soul, you would realize how unimportant the many concerns that we concern ourselves with are, and we would find joy in God's rescuing work of our soul. Paul says, Paul says this to us, look what God has done. The church, I want to say to you, look what God has done. Look what He did through Jesus our Lord. Look at how He has blessed us, not with the material stuff, even though certainly some of that comes from the hand of God, but with every spiritual blessing. Paul says, look, this is what God has done. And so church, can we for a moment just look and ponder what God has done? Paul's joy is inescapably tied to his knowledge of what God has done. You know, the whole gospel controlled Paul's whole life because that which we find our joy in is that which dictates our steps. Paul understood what God had done in the gospel. And I was thinking this morning, as I was brushing my teeth, about this passage and that we're going to work through over these uh, next few months, and there's some challenging things to work through here. There's some beliefs, some doctrine in these next few verses that in many churches are controversial, if you will. And I thought this, I thought this to myself, actually I said this to my wife, to Sarah. I said, she just walked in the room, I'm like, great, I can, I can preach for a moment. I said, you know, I would not be able to preach the joy that Paul has in verse 3 if I felt like I had to dance around and justify away the truths that he's about to talk about in verses 4 through 14. If I had to somehow work my way around what Paul is plainly telling us here, where would my joy be? It would be gone. But Christian, where is your joy? Where, where, where is it at? Like literally. Like where are you finding it in? Paul says, blessed be God. I find my joy in Him. Like what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, if there is no praise in a Christian's life, it is because he is ignorant of these things. If we desire to praise God, we must look at the truth and expand our souls as we come face to face with it. If we want to say, blessed be God from the heart, we must know something about how He has planned this great salvation. And so Paul's grounds for praise is the phrase, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Why is God worthy of praise? It's because He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's look at that spiritual blessing here just for real quick sake. Spiritual, the idea of spiritual blessing is pertaining to or belonging to the Spirit. Is there anything in the Spirit, dealing with the Spirit now, what are these blessings? I can't list them all off, but very quickly here, he's going to these blessings he's going to list off in these verses to come, and we will look at those in these months to come. But one of those is God's sovereign choosing. The next is his predestining to holiness, his adoption as God's sons and daughters, his redemption and forgiveness, the knowledge of God's gracious plan to sum up all things in Christ. The gift of the Spirit and perseverance, the hope of glory. Christian, these, he says every spiritual blessing. 
Paul is praising God because of the outpouring of every spiritual blessing. All that could be ours is ours in Christ. Does that make sense? All that is a blessing in heaven that could be ours is ours in Jesus Christ. Paul says every spiritual blessing, all in heaven that is good is ours. Every spiritual blessing. Now very quickly, as we talk about this, because we've been talking a lot about Paul's joys connected greatly to this God has blessed us with these very specific things, these spiritual blessings. But we have to be very, very careful. Because if, if we're not careful, we can, we can get into this, we're joyful because we are receiving all these good things. But what we want to do, and what Paul does, even in this very verse, as he helps point our eyes and point our hearts to God. Because joy and redemption must be rooted in God, otherwise your joy is not praise of God, but rather praise of avoiding consequences. The joy is to be rooted in God, and then the outpouring of blessings come from Him that are so beneficial to us. So we want to start with God. How does God work in the gospel? How does God carry out the gospel? What is His role? What is he doing? What is Paul telling us that God does in the gospel? So the next kind of big thought I want you to see is that I want you to see God's overarching covenant of grace as the whole gospel is the work of the triune God. All right, that's a really big fancy phrase, okay? Once you see God's overarching covenant of grace as the whole gospel is worked, is the work of of the triune God. I'll let that sentence just, or that thought there just soak for a second. I have to give credit. I was, as I was studying this passage, studying, studying this week, and <clears throat> wrote most of it, and, and I went back and was reading, you know, I'm reading through the sermons on this by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and um, as, as I got to his as he was reading, as I was reading through some of this, and he starts mentioning this covenant of grace, and I'm going, oh my goodness. Like, it was one of those where I'm like, I didn't see that. I didn't see it. I see it. Oh my gosh. So I'm like sitting in my study going, wow, look at that. It's there. Uh, Anyways. I want you to see something very curious here, okay? Now listen, here's what I'm going to do, particularly for those of you who are visitors. We talk a lot about like the overarching picture of Scripture. Like we, we want to, we, particularly as we're going through just like a verse, we want to see how that sets in the bigger picture. We don't want to lose the forest for the trees, if you will. It's going to help us understand. So understand I'm reaching a little bit beyond this text, not to Matt's words, but think to what the rest of the Bible says. All right, so I want you to see something very curious here. He says this. He says, The God and Father... Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? If you look back in verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Right? Our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't necessarily draw the distinction between those passages, but I want you to see that Paul's particular here. And what he does in verse 3 is he draws our attention that this is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these blessings that have come, have come through that relationship. From God through our Lord, who is the Lord of Jesus, all of these blessings have come from him. Now in Paul's mind, you've got to follow with me, Paul's mind, all of these blessings didn't begin when Jesus, is, when Jesus was born. They didn't begin the moment that, they walked, that, that, that Jesus stepped foot onto the earth. It didn't begin at that time. For Paul, all of this began in, before the foundations of the world. You follow with me? Tracking with me? 
So for Paul, this blessing that's come from God, this salvific work of God, as you will see later where he says, before the foundation of the world, Paul's mindset here in this verse is this didn't begin at this point 50, 60, 70 years ago. This began in eternity past. So this is God's salvific work, God's saving work from before the time began. So Paul, I think, intends to tell us something here concerning all the blessings that have ever come to God's people have always been through Jesus Christ. I think that's where Paul is taking us. Let me say that again. This is key. I think Paul intends to tell us something concerning all the blessings that have ever come to God's people have always been through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ... And a covenant of grace has always been God's plan. This didn't just happen prior or at the birth of Jesus Christ, although that was a part of it. So let's go. Let's read verse one, or or chapter one, verse three again. Blessed be the God and Father. And he says, "Who has blessed us in Christ?" God. And Father, what I want you to see, we're going to talk just very quickly here. You see all three persons, all three parts of the Trinity at work in this saving work of God. And I want to take that, as you see this Trinitarian work in this passage, and tie that to the covenant of grace that was made before time began. So the Father covenanted to be the origin and source of every spiritual blessing. Where does Paul say the spiritual blessings come from? They come from God the Father. Our God and Father who has blessed us in Christ. In verse 3, he says he's blessed us. We just read that. In verse 4, he says he chose us. In verse 5, it says he predestined us to be his sons and daughters. Verse 6 and 8 says he lavished his grace upon us. In verses 9 and 10, it says he made known to us his plan and the purpose for the world. All of these are referring to God the Father. God the Father has done this. The whole idea of redemption The whole plan was God the Father's. It was His plan. It was His thought. I want to point us to, it was also not just His thought, but He had the very power and the will to accomplish this amazing task. The sovereign will of the Father birthed every subsequent action of redemption. It was His plan. All these blessings that are coming to us that Paul's going to talk about have come from God the Father. The Father will be the one. So so think about this with me. In eternity past, right? So so just for those of you who don't maybe know our view on the Trinity, we have an orthodox view of the Trinity, three and one, one and three, that, that whole thing. So we're not trying to divide up the Trinity in a, in a heretical sense here, but we don't understand their different roles. Paul gives them different roles here in this passage. And he says that the F- God the Father was the one who willed this to happen. So think in eternity past, God within himself is discussing, imagine with me for a moment, his plan to create a world that he would create people, sin would enter that world, and that he would then eventually redeem those people. So what God does in eternity past, he plans this out. Who's the one that's going to be the one ultimately that grants forgiveness in this plan? It'll be the Father. The Father will be the one to grant forgiveness. So the the Father wills the plan. His Son's going to carry out that plan. But it's the Father is the one, ultimately, that does the forgiving. When Jesus is on the cross, the Father is the one who does the forgiving. So he says in eternity past, this is the plan, this is what I'm going to do. That's the Father's part. And then the second thing I want you to see is that the Son covenanted to be the sphere within which the, these blessings are given and received. There's some bad typos in that, my goodness. The Son covenanted to be the sphere within which these blessings are given and received. Okay? 
Look at verse 3 again. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, what? In Christ. In Christ. Not in good works, not in the right church, but in Christ. You know, if you study this passage, he mentions Christ or the pronoun referring to Christ 15 times in just 14 verses. He mentions explicitly in Christ or in Him 11 times. So the idea that this is coming from God the Father, but it's done in Christ is a big deal to Paul. It is in Christ, that is, because of our uniting in Him that God has blessed us. So it's God, if you will, as God incorporates us in Christ, that these blessings come to us. And if we're thinking again, covenant of grace, the Father is what we're going to do. I'll be the one to grant forgiveness. The Son is the one who will come into the world and take upon himself the sin of mankind and bear the punishment for their sin. All right? I want you to think, God is making this covenant within Himself. Okay? From the Father to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Making this agreement, this will be the plan. The third thing I want you to see is that the Spirit covenanted to be guarantee of these blessings. To be the guarantee of these blessings. Spirit covenanted to be the guarantee of the, among other things, but to be the one who would, who would bring these about in his people. So Paul, in this passage, refers to the Spirit at least a couple times. He says, first of all, every blessing is spiritual. So every blessing is referring to of the Spirit. This is contrasted against in the Old Testament, if you want to go read later this week, Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 14, where blessings were very material. But a mark, a distinctive of the new covenant, is that the blessings are spiritual. God's law is now written within the hearts of God's people by the Holy Spirit. Paul also closes this section, verse 14, with the Spirit in view as well. He says, God marks ownership and guarantee of His promises to His people by the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 14. He says, of course, the Holy Spirit, picking up then verse 14, verse, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So what I want you to see in here is that there's a Trinitarian work of salvation going on. And they made this agreement in eternity past that they would work this plan out whereby God's glory would be displayed through showing the grace to a people that He would make for His own. You see, God's display of this covenant can be seen all throughout Scripture. So we just take a, a very quick, brief overview of Scripture. In the garden, all right, think back with me to the garden, Genesis. In the garden, this is why this covenant of grace is why God can say to Adam, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. Why can he say that? Why can God say that? It's because the covenant of grace within the Trinity had already been made. That the Son would come to the earth and bruise the serpent's head. This covenant of grace, this agreement to work the, and to understand agreement. It's not, it's not like God was like pulling teeth, you know? If Jesus had teeth at that point, I don't know. You can ponder that. But like, it wasn't like he was trying to do that. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a debate. It wasn't, a, oh, will you go, oh, Holy Spirit, oh, uh, no, it was, here's the Father's plan, and Jesus, because he loves the Father, and because he's perfectly obedient to the Father, yes, Father, I want to do your will, and the Holy Spirit, to make all this happen. So in the garden, this is why God could say this. After the flood, God could promise that he would never send a flood in divine judgment to destroy the whole earth. Why? It's because his son would soon walk the earth and go under the baptism of God's wrath. Why could God promise? Why could God make the rainbow? And all? Because the covenant of grace had already been made. All these blessings that are going to come to God's people are because, or the outworking, the fruits of, the benefits of God's, great, God's covenant that he made with himself. 
long ago. The third example I'll give you is that God is able to promise redemption through Abraham's seed in the Abrahamic covenant, not because Abraham was special or did anything to deserve it, but it's because Jesus would come be the perfect seed of Abraham and bless the whole earth through the redemption, redemption of his people through his blood. God was able to make these promises because the ultimate promise, if you will, had already been made in eternity past. What I want you to see is that the Trinitarian work of God displayed here in this passage points to God's grand redemptive covenant of grace. Everything we will see in this passage is an outworking of God's covenant of grace made within the Trinity. I think that's why Paul points us to the Trinitarian work of God and why Paul points us to before the foundations of the world. I mean, this would be natural for Paul who understood his Old Testament way better than many of us will ever understand the Old Testament. I want you to think about it for just a second. Who could God make a covenant with where all parties involved could keep their part of the covenant? Where? Nowhere but within himself. Nowhere. So you see, all of God's covenants with man, the Adamic covenant, Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all these covenants with, God can keep this, his part of the covenant in spite of man's inability because of God's ability to keep the covenant of grace with himself. He can keep these things even though we screw up because they're all an outworking of the covenant that he made and can keep with himself. Now if that doesn't cause you to fall down and worship, I don't, honestly just don't know what will. Praise be to God that we are the beneficiaries of God's grace and peace, not because we earned it or even if we We just can't, but because our God made a covenant with himself that enabled mercy and grace and peace to be shown to us. Amen? If we're going to get through these doctrines in the week to come, you must understand that they are all the fruit of this eternal covenant of grace that every covenant has been ultimately pointing to. Guys, these spiritual blessings are ours because of God's covenant of grace made with himself. For what ultimate purpose? I think ultimately to display God's glory in what? The rescuing of God's enemies. And I mean, think about it. I mean, God rescues his enemies and turns them into worshipers of himself. Like, there's no greater task. God does that. These spiritual blessings are ours. So I want to encourage you with three implications of God's eternal covenant of grace and what we see, I think, here in verse 3. First one is this. Abide in Christ because these blessings are are ours only as God unites us in Christ. These blessings are ours only as God unites us in Christ. So we should abide in Him. That's what God's going to do. He's going to bring us to the point where we abide in Christ. He's going to keep us abiding in Christ. But look at verse 3. He says that He has blessed us in Christ. If you leave out the in Christ, then you will never have any blessings at all. Like None of these spiritual blessings are ours if you leave out the in Christ. I want you to understand, Paul is not dealing with general blessings given to all mankind, like air, water, God's restraining grace from sin, overtaking the world and destroying itself. That's general blessings God has given to every man. Paul is dealing with specific blessings that are only the possession of those who are in Jesus Christ. I want you to be clear with that. He's blessed us in Christ. You have to be in Christ to have these blessings. Now, in Christ, I think, refers even more specifically to the place where the blessings are found. So it says, in Christ, God chose us. That's verse 3 and 4. He bestowed His grace upon us in the Beloved. It's referring to Christ. So that we now have redemption and forgiveness of sins in Him. Verse 7. So these blessings... 
church are not yours, they're not mine because of something good in of ourselves or because we prayed some particular prayer. Stop looking for these blessings there. Because God doesn't love you, He doesn't love me because of something in and of myself. He loves me in Christ. He loves me in Jesus. It's God's taking me and placing me in Christ that makes me lovable. I want you to remind you what Jesus said in John 15, verse 6. He tells us to abide in Jesus. You can go read that later. Our seeking to abide in Jesus is evidence of God's uniting us in Him. So the implication of God uniting us in Him is that we should abide in Jesus. Matter of fact, I would say even strong, more, more strongly, we will abide in Jesus for those who are found in Christ. So abide in Christ. Church, if you want joy... Abide in Jesus. Second implication. Set your heart on eternal things because these blessings link us to eternity with God. Set your heart on eternal things because these blessings link us to eternity with God. Verse 3 again, he says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the what? The heavenly places. What does he mean by blessings in the heavenly places? If you study much of Paul's writings, Paul is getting into what we've talked a little bit about as a church, kind of the already not yet perspective. Okay, there's this sense in which we are already seeing and feeling the effects of God's saving work, and they're in one sense they're done. But in another sense, it's not yet fully done. Like, not completely fulfilled. We, we see that in heaven. So there's, all, there's a sense in which it is already done, a sense in which it's not already done. And Paul, I don't think, is describing some celestial topography here. It's metaphorical, not literal. These blessings, understood rightly, tie you and I directly to the heavenly realms, directly to the heavens, directly to eternity, if you will. So the blessings of salvation, follow me here, the blessings of salvation which believers have received from God link them with the heavenly realms. Not in some mystical, I'm not not talking about that, I'm talking like a, a sense in which these blessings, okay, this adoption as son, this persevering in the faith, this redemption that comes through the blood. These are all heavenly things. These are all things that are in spiritual things, in God, in the heavens, and these things now become ours. When that happens, it links us to the heavenlies. These blessings, if you are located in, founded in, reside in the heavenly realms among God and His eternal covenant. Again, when these blessings are applied to us, By the Spirit of God, it connects us to the eternal benefits of God's work. They're eternally ours. It it sets our eyes on something, should set our eyes on something much different than what we see here, but on something with an eternal perspective. Upon redemption in Jesus' blood, we are permanently connected to the eternal plan of God to lavish His riches upon us. This should lead us to an eternal perspective. This should lead us to keeping our eyes on eternity. So, again, I want to speak to you. If you consider yourself a follower of Christ, I just want to exhort you, husbands, don't be driven to give your wife and your family all the comforts of this world. Good food, nice house, pretty cars, nice clothing. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with those things. Give her God. Give her eternity. Give your family an eternal perspective. You be driven to know God's word and so wash your wife and your family with it. Point them to heaven. Remind them that your heart and those who are followers of Christ, that your heart resides in the heavenly places, not 
in this earth. We are sojourners here on a way to a much better place. Mother, Father, let me exhort you for a moment. Don't push, this is exactly what I have written here. I will caveat it in a second. Don't push your kids towards mathematics and grammar. What I mean by that is those are good things. But why do we put so much emphasis on that stuff and we forget to tell them where your heart resides? You forget to tell them that what God has done and, and that you are now eternally connected to something much greater than this earth. Certainly, we need to learn mathematics and grammar and so on and so forth. Those things aren't bad. But why, why do we spend hours and hours and hours and hours teaching them things like that? Teach them, church, teach your kids how desperate of a wretch you were. Teach your kids how God made a covenant long ago with himself to save a sinner like their mommy and their daddy. Tell them how Jesus upheld his part of the covenant by coming to the earth to die on the cross and to pay the price for your sins and my sins and their precious. Tell them how he gave you a new heart that now believes and trusts Jesus and his payment for his sins, for your sins. Tell them how the Holy Spirit continues and guarantees the success of this covenant as he resides in your soul and ensures your perseverance to the end. Teach your kids the things of God. I mean, you can do that through mathematics. You can do that through grammar, I suppose. Like, but teach them these things. Teach them these things. If you have a heavenly perspective, then you will view mathematics and grammar and schooling and how to cut the yard. You'll view all those things through an eternal perspective. As I was out planting grass seed, I was saying, curse you, Adam. Curse you, Adam. Daggone it. The crowns are hard. I have an eternal perspective. The last thing I want to say is this. Be joyful in God because we are the recipients of every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. We want to look at one word in verse 3. Just one word. Blessed be God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed what? He's blessed us. He's blessed us. Amen? We are the beneficiaries of God's eternal divine plan. We are the beneficiaries of what he's getting ready to talk about in the weeks to come. All of these blessings. We are the beneficiary. We, we get those. We are the receivers of these things. Everything that the Christian, that Christians have received through God's saving act in Christ, it's ours. And it's ours immediately too. We'll talk about that in the future. That's kind of the already, but not yet. Paul understood these glorious truths concerning the fruits of God's eternal covenant of grace, and he knew that he was a recipient of this. Paul's joy explodes when he contemplates the glorious outworking of God's eternal plan. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. My question is this, why would you, why would I ever seek to find our joy anywhere else? Why? Why would we do that? I want you to think. Just Why would you place the weight of joy giver on your spouse? Why would you ever do that? Did he or she contemplate a covenant with themselves before the foundation of the world to bring eternal redemption to your wretched soul? Did your spouse do that? Then why do you try to find your joy in your spouse? They can't give it. Why would you place the weight of joy giver on the pleasing of your kids and making them happy? Did they one day look at each other and say, my mom is such a wretched sinner. One day, I will be the one to grant forgiveness and you, brother, will be the one to pay the price for her sin. Then why would you try to find your joy in your kids? Why? I mean, I do it too. But I'm asking myself the question, Why? Why would you ever place the weight of joy giver on your church 
or your pastors? Did your church speak within itself a promise to one day reconcile you to the Creator God through the blood work of one of its members? No. No. But Christian, you know who did? Do you know who did? The triune God of the universe covenanted long ago that God the Father would one day forgive a people through the sacrifice of the Son as the payment for our sins. And the Holy Spirit would guarantee the forgiveness of, of, of these sins and the subsequent inheritance of this work and the recipients of this plan. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to throw yourself at the mercy of God and ask Him to forgive you of your sins and believe and place your faith that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. This was God's plan. God did that for you. He planned that from eternity past for His great glory and to show you great grace and mercy. Church, be joyful. Be joyful because we are the recipients of every spiritual blessing. May your joy, may my joy be evidenced by praise to God. What does Paul say here? Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Father, you chose me for salvation. You predestined me for adoption. You declared me a son. You gave me redemption through your son's blood. You made me to made known to me and to us the mystery of your will. You have united me in Christ. You have set my home in the heavenly realms. You have given me an inheritance that I have yet to taste the full bounty of. You have made me praise your glory. You have sealed my wandering heart in the firm grasp of your Holy Spirit. Every spiritual blessing is mine. It is yours if you're a follower of Jesus Christ because in eternity past, our triune God made a covenant with himself to display grace to me and to you, a wretched sinner. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your saints are worshiping you even this very moment. That the joy is welling up inside of their hearts because of your goodness, because of your work, Father, that you would devise such a plan as the creator of the universe that would in packed us so much that you would change, that you would stoop so low to change what we deserve, and that is eternal punishment. Father, you, though, gave up your son Jesus. You sent him to this earth, and he willingly came. He gladly came, joyfully came. He joyfully goes to the cross to bear the weight of my sin and our sin so that we, by the work of your Spirit, who would have faith in that work of your Son, Jesus, might be made right. So, Father, I pray that uh, we would worship you for your saving work. And Father, we give you praise. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?